He sat in a car just outside of the house, snowing, cold, and he's waiting and frustrated, looks into the house, kind of trying to see through frosted windows. The house is beautifully decorated. It's Christmas Eve. You can see people in there trying to see if his kids are going to come out because it's his night to take them. It's his ex-wife's in-law's house. They're having a Christmas party and they're waiting for Santa to come. He's waiting in the car, gets frustrated, decides to go up to the door. The kids are like, "Ah, is it Santa? They open the door and they're like, oh, it's just dad. He stands there sheepishly kind of, I thought it was the time. It's just like, oh, it is. And they're cordial with each other. They've learned to do this. But it's, Santa hasn't come yet, you know, so we're kind of waiting around. You can tell the kids are like not wanting to go. They're complaining. We haven't seen this yet. And so he kind of stands in the doorway and he's like, well, you know, maybe you should get your things. Like, well, can we wait a little bit? Why don't you come in? Her new boyfriend is there and he meets him. He's like, no, I think I'll just, I'll just wait here. His ex-mother-in-law comes up and says, oh, come in, you'll be fine. In fact, why don't you sit down and play a song on the piano? You're the only one who knows how. He's like, no, come on, it's fine. Sing White Christmas. So he sits down reluctantly and he's playing and he sings, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas just like the ones I used to know. As he's singing, you hear the kids, and particularly the little boy, is upset and he's pitching a fit. I don't want to go with dad. He gets up, he goes over to his ex-wife and he says, it's okay, I'll just leave. His little girl is a little older, starting to pick up on this tension that's happening between her parents and is torn what to do. That couple and every couple who is married is supposed to be a picture of something. It's supposed to tell a story, it's supposed to sing a song, actually to play a symphony about something. That something is the love of God and how he loves us, how he's committed to us, how he has humbled himself to serve us, even to give up his very life. When people look at marriage, it's supposed to be a, everywhere you look, you see the love of God and people serving each other with humility, the never stopping, unrelenting, even in your worst moments, I'll love you without condition type of song. Oops. It's ironic that the film is set on Christmas Eve. Christmas, Christ mass, a Christ feast to be this experience God. It's clear the filmmaker was probably trying to be somewhat ironic because we all know that contrary to fixing relationships, many times the holidays highlight the brokenness. In a clever final image, and this is a short film, a French film actually that I I watched recently that was made last year. The dad's name is Dennis and he's at the, in the front of the house, he gets into his car. And it's just, he's just so broken. You get to see it. 
broken relationship, broken marriage. His kids don't even want to come with him. And all of a sudden, here's this little on the window. And it's this little girl with her suitcase. She opens the door. She says, change my mind. <laughs> You're kind of like, oh, really? She gets in, you know, fine, I'll go with you. And he's overwhelmed with tears, just pouring down his face that she would. And it's not a fix, but it's kind of helpful. So he starts the car, puts it into drive. And then you hear, the tires are spinning. He's stuck in the snow and he's like, ah, like she, you know, and she's like, <laughs> the little girl's like, it's okay, Dennis. That's her dad's name. <laughs> They'd been waiting on Santa and she looks out the back window of the car and sees someone coming in red. And you see this light up on her face. It's like, ah. but then she looks closer and her face kind of turns to a bit of a frown and the guy's doing this. <laughs> with a cigarette perched in his lip. And it's Santa, all right. But she goes, Gilbert, family friend, and realizing, and kind of in this beautiful moment, you see this little girl who has to be the adult. She rolls down the window and she goes, Gilbert, push. <laughs> so the image of the final scene in the movie is Gilbert dressed as Santa Claus, cigarette hanging out of his mouth, push in the car to try to get them unstuck. Now that film is probably new to you. This just came out last year. It's in French. You may not be in the habit of watching French films. I watched it with subtitles, but you have seen it. You've seen that movie. We've all seen that movie. That movie has been on repeat for centuries. In fact, it played the first time in this passage, if you have a Bible, you can look there, but it's going to be on the screen as well. Genesis 3, 24, the very first marriage ends with this. God drives out the couple, the man. At the east of the Garden of Eden, places a cherubim. And that's not a kind, happy one who's ready to shoot arrows on Valentine's Day. This is an angel with a sword who says, if you get any closer, I'm going to kill you. Flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So if we're going to talk about marriage, which by the way, today is about marriage. <laughs> we're going to start with the brokenness because I feel like the Lord, I really felt his hand this week saying, go there. Because that's what everybody feels anyway. Everybody thinks about it. Anytime anybody gets up front and says, listen to our marriage and how great it is. Everybody's like, oh, Right? <laughs> who, who doesn't have places of brokenness? And maybe you have a wake of destruction in your past and you're like, is there any hope? Where's the exit if you're going to be up there telling me about the perfect marriage? I felt like the Lord said, start here. Start here at this really dark moment for them. Because the result, not just for them, but for us, he drove out the man. Out, east of Eden. What was the message of Satan to the couple? Fascinating this conversation was happening, first of all. The message to the couple had been, God is withholding from you. He's keeping something from you. You must take it for yourself. 
do for you. Sound familiar? What's in it for me? Who's absent from that conversation? God. They don't ask him. They've been talking to him. It says they used to walk with him, hanging out. Can you imagine that? They're walking brand new earth. Everything's brand new. The paint is still wet. They're walking around. He's showing them things. They're talking about life. He's showing them how they are satisfied in him, all this stuff that's clear to them. And yet when this conversation happens, he's out. He's not in the conversation. They don't go to ask him, hey, what should we do? There's something familiar about the first marriage, something that fits right in with the film I watched. Adam and Eve, first human beings in the first marriage set apart, formed by God's own breath and image, the very pinnacle of his handiwork, designed and joined together to reflect something. Remember we taught every couple is supposed to tell this story of God's love for us the gospel on display, they're sitting outside the Garden of Eden. Hot tears run down their faces. And if you could look close, if you could get a snapshot of their eyes, you would see something flashing back and forth, reflecting that sword from the angel. And something had to be killed to cover them. They're itchy in their new clothes. And Eve sits with her back and Adam sits with his back to his wife. Suspicious. Adam's hands are caked with dirt and blistered because he's had to try out the new gardening that didn't work out so well the way it used to. It's difficult. This story on repeat, this song on repeat, this film on repeat. Psalm 137 is another one. Look at this. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and we cried. We wept. Why? When we remembered Zion, we remember what it was like to be with God. On the willows there, we hung up our instruments and our captors, our enemy, required of us songs. One other translation says, demanded Sing, sing about your God, sing about your mirror, sing about the truth. Go ahead, sing those songs. What? They don't mean anything to you anymore? Sometimes scripture says what needs to be said, shows us something that just cuts through all the noise when we ask deep questions about life or relationships or where we truly are, not physically, but spiritually, we can answer poetically and biblically to answer questions, the same one that God asked Adam and Eve in the Bible. It's the same question he asked you today. Where are you? Well, we're stuck. We're broken. We're held captive. We're east of Eden. We are by the rivers of Babylon. By the rivers of Babylon, we all sat down and cried. It's one of the reasons God's word is so powerful. Hebrews says it's sharp it's living, it's active. You open it up, you spend time and God finds a way like a surgeon with a scalpel to get in there. And sometimes it's also like a can opener and just, just props you open. And you're like, oh my goodness, how did you do that? God's word telling us. So just as the first couple 
And then the lament and sorrow of the Israelites who were in captivity because of their sin, same song. It puts understanding into 2022 for us, doesn't it? Yes, we can relate. That's why that film is not a foreign film to us. We know it. We understand. We can relate to that. It may be our own story. As we think and talk about marriage, we must start with our own rivers of Babylon, where the enemy speaks to us. Same way he spoke to Adam and Eve, telling them God is withholding from you. His words about your relationship, how he will satisfy you. Go ahead, sing those songs, Christians. That relationship you dreamed about when you were a little boy or a little girl. How's it now? True love? Happy? Sing. You may be saying, well, I really can't anymore. I don't know if I even believe it anymore. I don't know if I even care. I've heard plenty of sermons and read a lot of articles and writings and blog posts. And when I used to be on social media, which is now it's been over a year, let me tell you, I'm not trying to say like that that's what you need to do. But I want to tell you that for me, I came up and I was like, oh my goodness, this is what air is like. (laughs) It's been so good. So just try it a day or something like that. It's been so helpful. But as I read before, lots of, and when people wanted to talk about marriage from a Christian perspective, many times it was like this. Listen up, you're not doing it right. And usually those accusatory fingers are pointed at the people who can't sing anymore. Well, what good's that gonna do? Sing! What's your problem? This is God's design. And it isn't that he doesn't have a beautiful design for marriage. He does. It's clear. It's right there in scripture. One man, one woman, that is God's design for life committed. And it isn't that the Bible needs to catch up either. The Bible just should just catch up to our modern times. The Bible is always on time. As God's word, it's way ahead of us. But if I can't sing it anymore and that song bothers me, maybe we should change the song. And to be sure, some have changed the song. Sing it, sing something different. It didn't work. So it must not be true. What's the problem with rewriting God's song? And put aside for the moment that we are broken and that that film resonates with us. We get the river thing. It's part of our story. Okay. What's the problem with rewriting the song that is supposed to tell us about the love of God? Well, let's have Jesus singing a different song about you and me. What if instead of singing his unconditional, committed, faithful, unto death, serve, love you with everything I've got, what if he said and sang, you know, I'm just not feeling it anymore with you. I'm kind of tired of you and your stuff. You bother me. I give up because I feel like it. I've decided for me that I'm no longer going to love you. Oh, that's the problem, isn't it, for us? No, 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 don't change that song. <laughs> don't change that song. And so we have this tension and it's okay. It's okay to feel the tension. It's okay to, the scripture gives you permission. It doesn't say, here's the standard, you didn't do it, then get out. Does it do that? No. He says, look, look deep, sit by the river. Don't rewrite the song, sit, rest for a moment, reflect, wait on him, wait on the Lord. This morning, I hope 
I hope, and I believe this is where God had me start here in the passages we're gonna be in, that you will be so encouraged no matter where you are to know there is always, always hope in Jesus. There's always hope in Jesus. Sit by the river, hang up your instrument for the moment, wait on him. Even if the enemy is goading you on, asking you to sing, wait on Jesus and be honest. Lord, I not only think this is a lost cause, it's so gone. I can't even begin to think how I would fix this. The enemy and many times the world agrees with this approach. Sure, give it up. It's too hard. It's broken. Lost causes need to be abandoned. Does Jesus leave us there? How does he help us in our brokenness? What about marriages that aren't necessarily obviously broken, but not thriving either? Where we would say, yeah, we're roommates. I guess business partners at this point, we're both kind of contributing financially and, you know, things work. So we'll just go with it. Or maybe there are young marrieds here who are wondering, what is wrong with all these old people? (laughs) Or you're going to get married someday and you're like, "Um, okay, can this be avoided? I believe that Jesus can bring hope. So I want to take just a few moments in scripture. And here's an interesting thing. Not one of these is a particular specific marriage passage but I believe they will speak to your heart and to the bridegroom who is after your heart, uh, but also give you hope in whatever's happening. This story, and if you have a Bible um, and you want to put a bookmark somewhere um, or dog ear it, or, you know, I'm all in favor of writing and underlining and putting stuff and prayers. First Kings 19, uh, we're going to read 12 verses there. If there is a story that is an emergency break glass story, this is it. Like if you are, if you have a day where you're like, I don't know, nope, not doing this anymore. I'm not doing anything anymore. I don't care. I'm giving up. First Kings 19, in case of emergency, break glass. This is the one. And you may be like, what? Old Testament? Come on. I promise. I'm going to show you. First Kings 19, mark it. Here we go. Ahab, bad king. That's all you need to know for Israel. Doesn't want to follow the Lord anymore. Jezebel, bad lady, doesn't want to follow the Lord. (laughs) They actually are following false God named Baal. They have priests and prophets and church all set up for this false thing. And so Elijah, our character here, who is really having a tough time, has just had this amazing collision and fight with them. And God won. God won. He ended up like destroying all those prophets, showed that he's the powerful one. Yay, God, we're on top of the world. So Ahab tells Jezebel about that. Everything that Elijah did and how he killed all the prophets with the sword and how he won and how it looks like God is the winner. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. I want you to think about the enemy in the garden. I want you to think about the enemy by the riverside. And I want you to think about the enemy who wants to speak to you too. And he said, and Jezebel said to Elijah, so may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow, I'm going to kill you. Okay. Don't read it with a church voice. When you read this passage, (laughs) Jezebel is going to murder him. Okay. This is, you can put this on Netflix. I'm going to kill you. 
And so Elijah was so strong. No. Then he was afraid. And he got up and he ran for his life. This is God's man. This is the prophet. This is the guy who just had the showdown with all these false prophets, called down fire from heaven, burned up the altar, burned up the rocks, burned up the water. I mean, God is alive. He's amazing. And he gets one message from her and he's like, I'm out of here. Since he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And even there, he just told his servant, he's like, I don't even want to do anything with you anymore. Just stay here. He goes another whole day into the wilderness and he sits down under a tree and he says, Lord, it is enough. Kill me now. I don't want to live. Take my life. I'm no better than my father's. So I'm going to sleep a little bit. I'm going to have a little nap here. He lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. He looked and behold, and there was at his head, angel food cake. <laughs> That's where it got invented, right here. Baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and he drank and he lay down. Angel of the Lord woke him up again, second time and said, arise and eat. The journey is too great for you. He got up, he ate, he drank. He went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. He's good. He's going to make it now. He doesn't need any more help, right? Wrong. Verse nine, I'm going to go live in a cave. <laughs> so Elijah, he's not quite encouraged enough yet. He comes to a cave, he lodges in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him in just a profound prophetic question, what are you doing here? What are you doing, Elijah? And he said, Lord, I've been, I've been jealous for you. The people of Israel, they've all forsaken you. They've thrown away your altars. They're killing people. And I'm the only one left who loves you. And they're going to kill me too. So God said, go and stand on the mountain before me. Behold, the Lord passed by in a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. And Elijah looked. Nope, the Lord was not in the wind. And after the, the wind, an earthquake. Surely the Lord is in the earthquake. It's powerful, right? Nope, the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, fire, fire of God. God's not in the fire, though. And after the fire, sound of a low whisper. And Elijah was like, <laughs> There you are. Now I hear. Elijah had been doing great. He had stood with the Lord, been a voice for the Lord, carried his message with resilience, stood up to people that wanted to kill him, had this big, awesome fight and showdown with false prophets and seen God win. If Elijah was, if this was a marriage, he's hanging in there. He's doing well. He's faithful. He's serving. His song is being sung with bravado. But then things got hard. And he runs. Runs for his life, asks that he might die. It's enough, Lord, take away my life. I'm not, I'm not any good. 
a day into the desert. This is hopeless, Lord. This is a lost cause. Can you just kill me now? Take my life. It's too much. Have you felt that way before? Do you feel that way now when you think about your own relationships or just even your relationship with God or your marriage or your past marriage? Do you say, yeah, it's just it's too much. I don't, I don't have the strength anymore. How do we think God should respond to his crack prophet who's been serving him and speaking for him? How should God respond? If we're in a legalistic kind of mode, and we're in a gird up your bootstraps kind of religiosity type approach, we would say, snap out of it. What's your problem, man? Elijah, look what we just did. Get up. Do the work of God again. What's wrong with you? But that's not what he does. He sends an angel and by the way, in the Old Testament, you always want to take a look. Whenever there's an angel of the Lord, many times it is what's called a theophany. Theos meaning God showing up. And many times it's Jesus. I tend to believe this is him. Waking him up. Arise and eat. You know what you need? You need to get yourself together, mister. Nope. Hey, eat. You ever, your mom ever do that for you? Or your dad? <laughs> you come home or grandmother? Just so frustrated. You just need a cookie. <laughs> right? Let's just feed you. But there's something about that too. Sitting down to a warm meal when your heart's broken or you didn't get the job or something's going on and things are just awful and you sit down and you're with people that love you that say, hey, eat something. It's okay. It's gonna be okay. And you know what? Now I think you should go take a nap because you're home. You're home. Rest. Eat and rest. In case of emergency, break glass. If you're ever at this place where you think the Lord is just wanting you to do something that's impossible, you can't fix something, know that he would say to you, you know what? Sit back, eat something, rest. I love you. It's okay. I got you. So he does. And then the Lord wakes him up again and says, how about a little more food? This is hard. This is a hard journey for you. You need to eat and sleep. So he regains his strength in the Lord. But then right back into hopelessness. You have that happen? I do. Listen, I have that happen in between services. Today was one of them. Okay? Today was one of them. I literally stood back there in that corner and said, Lord, am I preaching this thing into the ground here? I really want to know. You better tell me. Because all I know is to keep talking about you and keep preaching your word. Sometimes it happens, right? You can be encouraged. And then the next moment you're like, oh man, why did that person say that? And the Lord's like, just <laughs> rest. It's fine. Eat something, sleep. But he goes into the cave anyway. And I love God's question. And it's an appropriate question. And it's one he needs to ask us often. What you doing here, bud? <laughs> what are you doing in here? Come out. Let me show you something. And we think, 
okay, show me something. You see my marriage? You see the ruins? You see my family? Can you fix it? Can you show me some fireworks? How about some thunder? How about an earthquake? How about something powerful, Lord? And God says, how about a whisper? How about the still, small voice? The Lord was not in the wind. The Lord was not in the earthquake. The Lord was not in the fire. The Lord was in the sound of a low whisper. How does God respond to Elijah? Comes after him. He loves him because Jesus loves lost causes. Our world would say marriage is a lost cause. Give it up. And the Lord says, no, I love it. And I love you. And even if you're broken, even if you're hurting, I love lost causes. Jesus doesn't come waving a ruler or the law book or reminding him of who he is and he better get up and just pull it together. No, he, he sympathizes with him in his weakness. How can God be so merciful to us in our weakness and sin? How can he love us this way? I'm reading a book now called Gentle and Lowly by pastor and theologian Dane Ortland. And he, a couple of very familiar verses, you may have heard them before, or at least a portion of them. Mark, Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you a slap in the face. <laughs> Rest, take my yoke upon you. Take it upon you. Learn from me. For I'm a hard-driving taskmaster. I'm gentle. I'm lowly. And you will find rest. You will find rest for you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. There's a quote from Dane Ortland's book. Meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy. Not harsh reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Isn't that beautiful? Hebrews 4 is another verse. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he didn't sin. So he's both savior, king, and priest, able to meet you in weakness. He actually says that that is when Jesus most loves to meet you. That's not the way we think about things, is it? If you think about just even the old stereotypical kind of view of going to church, what do we do? right? Get it together, dress up, come to church, put on your Sunday best. We argued all the way here in the car, but we got out and we're like, hey, everybody, welcome to church. We're perfectly ready to worship. It's all a fake and Jesus sees through it anyway, but what he actually loves is those days when you're like, I'm ready to die. I want to give it up. And Jesus says, I'm coming. I want to, I can't help, he can't help it, but come. He loves to come to you in your weakness. Now you may say, okay, good. I like that Jesus is caring and merciful. But have you seen my situation, Lord? Have you seen what, what's going on in my world? 
In my marriage, Lord, I'm on my second. It's not going well either. Have you seen? This is probably a little more difficult. I'm gonna need more than food, a nap, and a whisper. I'm gonna need more than that. So this is the part where I share a little bit about our marriage. And I, I was talking to Lisa this week and she's like, what are you speaking on this week? I was like, marriage. She goes, oh no. <laughs> Which is fair because I, I usually, whenever I talk about anything with family stuff, I am supposed to ask permission and sometimes I forget. But uh, yeah, enough said there. So we talked about it this week. Um, but one of the things that, so I'm going to, I'm going to give you just, just real tiny snapshot of what I believe is the one necessary thing for you to understand and pursue in order for everything else to eventually, even if it is in the new recreation of the world, for everything else to fall into line. And so, and I know like sometimes you, there's marriage books and all these different things you should do and 10 things and all that. Like, I'm the worst for that kind of thing. But I can give you a snapshot and show you places in our marriage where the Lord has done beautiful things. But the other, just a week or so ago, I was sitting downstairs. And so, you know, no, uh, Lisa loves to read. I'm learning to love to read, but it's not my go-to. I'm just as happy to watch the wild play hockey. But I was sitting downstairs and, you know, you learn to, pick up on cues from being with your best friend for 27, 28 years. And so, and also to listen to Jesus. And I, I kind of felt like he was like, go upstairs. So we sat and like we've done a thousand times before, and it was so good. And after we sit and talk and listen and hear, um, but it's one of those things where we do, where we check in and we're like, how are we doing? Um, and Honesty is the best thing rather than be like, yeah, good, fine. I don't know. But to say, yeah, I think we've maybe missed each other a little bit here. We need to reconnect. And so as I studied this week, I remembered one of those conversations probably from 20 years ago. And Lisa was reading and I remember exactly where she was sitting in our bed, uh, in our bedroom in Knoxville and reading this book uh, called The Journey of Desire by John Eldridge. Uh, and it's told the story, and I'm just going to tell you this little story because I feel like it was, it was a beautiful prayer that the Lord had put in Lisa's heart for our marriage. And here's what it was. So there was a sea lion living in the desert. His flippers were cracked and dried. His skin was all dried up. And he lived there, and he lived there for some time. He wasn't really sure how he got there. But in his mind, he thought, well, this must be as good as it gets. This must be how life is supposed to be. There would be travelers coming through and he would ask, do you know how to get to the sea? And nobody knew. Eventually he took refuge by a tree with leaves that would give a little bit of shade. And there's this small muddy water hole, which he would swim in and it took about half a second to get to one side and the other to swim back and forth and he settled learned to survive but at night he would as sea lions do you know kind of I don't know how they do it but you know like doing the little walk up onto this rock 
would lift his nose up into the air and the breeze would carry this faint smell of salt water. And then he would go to sleep and he would dream of this vast ocean and swimming for miles, playing in that water. Wake up and had a friend, a tortoise, who used to be a sea turtle, who would tell him, you see that water hole right there? That's the ocean. Deal with it. That's it. Get used to it. So he did. He stopped dreaming eventually about the ocean. Stopped going up on the rock, lifting his nose and just learned to accept it, to live with it. But fierce desert winds blew for weeks and blew every single leaf off of his tree, no more shade, and completely dried up the waterhole. And that night, he dreamed of the ocean again. But it wasn't just him swimming. There were other sea lions. Woke up, tears running down his sea lion face, and started his little scoot across the desert. And the tortoise said, what are you doing? He said, I'm going to find the ocean. I don't know if Lisa even remembers that, but I remember her telling me about that story and the hope and tears for our own marriage to find the ocean, to find what God had for us. And I can't even tell you what he did other than that he did it and has done it and continues to do it on a daily basis. You see, whether it's Adam and Eve or people who sit on countless banks of their own Babylon rivers, everybody has these moments where you say, well, I guess I got to better get used to this. This is how it is. This must be as good as it gets. I probably deserve this. Stop dreaming for the ocean. Stop thinking that God can do anything, but God does do something, has done something. Genesis 3, 21, back to the story of the original couple before they were banished, which the banishment, by the way, was for their good so that they wouldn't be eternally dead in their sins. Didn't want them to reach out for the tree of life and stay dead. Before he did that, look at what God did. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. They couldn't do this for themselves. God had to make it for them. This is a picture. It's a shadow, but it's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of what God was going to do for us through Jesus. He would clothe us. Marriage is two broken people, both needing God to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. It has to start there. Your spiritual condition, your spiritual location. Are you standing up, defiant, proud, face hardened to God and to Jesus? Or are you humbled, on your face, surrendered? I forget where I read this, but whoever the author is, you know who you are. 
but God makes them clothes and sewn into the lining of the clothes is a name. Emmanuel. God with us. Sewn into the clothes. So I want you to picture Adam and Eve standing there and they literally, they're, they're naked, they're ashamed, they're broken, they're crying. And God comes up and says, I made you something. I made you something. Places a robe over their shoulders and it is animal skin. Something had to die for them to be clothed. Wraps it around them. There you go. An ocean of grace is available to you. Clothes made by God himself. The New Testament brings this into a clear view by telling us that these are, get this, wedding clothes. Here's the question. Do you want to wear them? Do you want to wear what God has made for you? What the New Testament also says that you would be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Colossians actually says to put on Jesus, the image of the father and the prodigal son returning home, the robe wrapped around him. Maybe you're hung up though on the loss of time. Things have already happened. You're too far gone. Let me show you one more moment in scripture. This will be the last one where the actual clothes were made for humanity, for anyone that would be willing to accept God's clothes in Jesus. Matthew 27, 54, look at this. With a centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly this was the son of God. Could you be more in the wrong than being the soldier whose job it was to oversee the crucifixion? Is this guy any more lost, the centurion? No, you can't be any further. You can't be any more broken. And if you look at him and you say lost cause, yeah, that guy, he's crucifying him. He's overseeing the crucifixion. He's making sure that God is killed. That guy's beyond hope. No way can he be helped. Um, God says otherwise. What happens? In an instant, he's watching over Jesus, earthquake, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he's filled with awe and says, this is the son of God. This is the son of God. You want to know a secret about this guy? Was he ready for this? Did he try to make this happen? Did he come to his senses? No, it was done for him. So what's our takeaway? Clothes made by God, not us. The worst offender right here in scripture doesn't have a lot of time, doesn't go to Sunday school for a long time. It's in an instant, okay? Doesn't go to Bible school. It's in an instant. He has a moment of clarity and declares in worship that Jesus is the son of God. So our takeaway, it's not too late. Surrender to Jesus. That's my one marriage thing. Surrender to Jesus, both for your salvation, but also every day in every situation. As long as you have breath in your lungs and you are alive on this earth, you have the opportunity to walk and live by the grace of Jesus. Recognize and call on the most important person in your marriage. 
end in the room. It's Jesus. Yeah, but what if I have nothing left? What if my marriage is in ruins or we're just living with each other, coexisting, but not experiencing anything that you're saying? You may not be able to soften the heart of your spouse, but you can obey and humble yourself. You can get on your face and say, Lord, I can't change this. I can't fix this, but I surrender. I will wear the clothes you have provided for me. If there's a secret to marriage, it's this. Bring your lost cause to him. And I mean, even the broken ones. And I don't mean that, oh, all of a sudden it's gonna, you know, I'm gonna fix this. And the person I, you divorce, you're, it's not, that's not what it's saying. But God makes things new and restores in his way. Bring your lost cause to him. Submit to Jesus so you can submit to each other. Some of the worst, Lisa and I were talking about this this week, the worst marriage advice we ever received. You ready for it? Marriage is hard. We're like, is that like prophetic? What are you doing? Like, is that, what are we supposed to do with that? That's horrible. Don't say that. And Lisa was just responding. And I think it's a great comment. It's like, no, actually life is hard. Who do you want by your side when it's hard? Somebody surrendered to Jesus. Who do you want to be with on a bad day? Somebody who's humble is a servant and is surrendered to Jesus. That whole mutual submission thing in Ephesians that people are sometimes scared of and totally just ripped to shreds as far as making it into this thing of like, well, you're going to submit and I'm going to make the decisions. What a bunch of garbage. Mutual submission, loving each other the way Christ loved the church, humbling yourself even to the point of death. That's surrender to Jesus. Yeah, but how do I fix them? Leave it <laughs> to Jesus. Scripture even speaks to those with unbelieving spouses. And lest we forget, John chapter four, the Samaritan woman, how many marriages? Five. And then another that she wasn't married to. Which you may say, if you're, you know, current day pointing the finger, writing an article about marriage, blah, blah. Uh, you can come to church, but you know what? We're gonna, you're gonna have to spend a lot of time learning and really show us that you're serious because Jesus puts her to work that day. She is the missionary. She tells everybody, everybody is coming to Christ because of her. And Jesus definitely still wants her to walk away from her life of sin, but he doesn't beat her over the head. How could you? He sits down next to her by the river and he shows her, surrender to me. Surrender to me. I'll take care of everything else. I'll give you one final picture of how this just has been time and again, so many different times in our marriage. But recently we're watching The Chosen together. I encourage you, if you don't have our app, get the app. We've got a little thing in there. You can watch The Chosen. It's a great way. If you're like, I don't even know how to read the Bible yet. Jump in, watch a couple of episodes of The Chosen that's based on text from scripture. You'll get to meet Jesus. You'll be crying and moved, I promise you. But we're watching this together. Lisa's sitting next to me and it gets to one of these moments where it's just like, Jesus is amazing and he's helping somebody and we're both getting choked up. And I start tears in my eyes. And you know, you do that thing when you start crying around people, you're like, <sighs> you know, like, I don't wanna do that. Um, but I look over at Lisa and she's crying and I'm crying and I say, you know what? That's how I know 
this is going to work out. Because we both love that guy. <laughs> we are both surrendered to him. Everything else eventually falls into place. I promise. Surrender to Jesus. Even if you would say, yeah, but look at mine. It's so broke. You surrender to Christ. He will be enough. He will be enough. Are you brave enough to go home today and ask your spouse, hey, how am I doing with this whole surrender to Jesus thing? Can you do that? Do you have faith like that sea lion? Hope that says, you know what? I'm going to find the ocean. I'm going to find the ocean. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that the Bible begins and ends with a wedding and that your heart and desire is that we would be dressed radiant in our wedding clothes, clothed with Jesus Christ, presented, or even as your earthly brother Jude said, without spot, perfect and beautiful. Lord, we want to surrender to you today. God, we bless you. We thank you for this time together. And Lord, we just, we right now just ask for honesty. We ask for authenticity or that we would be able to say, okay, okay, here it is, Lord. I'm going to hang up the instrument and I'm going to sit here by this river and I'm going to say, yeah, this is feeling pretty lost. Lord, what can you do? Would you meet us there? Uh, even as we worship, Lord Jesus, would your spirit be moving through this room and put your hands on shoulders, whisper into ears, Lord. Speak your love, your kindness, your goodness, your mercy. Lord, you're gentle, you're lowly. Anyone who comes to you, you will never reject. That's what your word says. Oh man, let's stand and worship together.